0: Good morning everybody, God bless you, glad you're with us this morning. Uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Timothy, please. Um, if anyone doesn't have a Bible here this morning, can you raise your hand and one of the ushers or elders will bring a Bible? We need one over here, Pastor Steve. Uh, anyone else need a Bible? Please raise your hands. Get one for our brother here. So gratefully he didn't have to drive to Jersey. Um... All right, so we're going to be uh, going through the book of Timothy here today, line by line and verse by verse. Last week we did an introduction. Um, We got through maybe a verse, but I think we're going to go back over the verse. So maybe we're arguing we didn't get through a verse, but uh, um, it's such a beautiful book as Pastor Paul is writing this to his son in the faith Uh, early on, certainly one of the earlier uh, pastoral epistles made up of three letters, obviously, first and 2 Timothy, and then also Titus, and it is a sweet time. Um, So let's bow our heads, and we'll we'll pray for God's anointing, and then we'll begin in the Word of God. Father, we thank you that you've given us the uh, promise and privilege to gather here, Lord, and the freedom to gather, to open our Bibles, Lord, and and just to be able to pour over your word, God, thank you so much for providing this building for us and the seats. And Lord, most importantly, your anointed word, God, that we get to read. And we pray you would anoint it this morning and send it into our hearts perfectly knit. Um, God, that your truth would speak louder than any of the lies and volumes of evil from the world, Lord, that you would seal these things in our hearts, God, that you'd give us the eyes to see and ears to hear, where we lay down the cares of this world, Lord, the things that have been prodding and pricking our hearts this week, that there would be no distraction here this morning, but just peace out in you, Lord. Speak to our hearts, Lord. These things are difficult. We know there's a lot that you've written in this letter, Lord, that's heavy, heavy Jesus. So we pray, God, that you go before us right now, and Lord, I pray I'd step out of the way, and it would just be, all that would remain would be you, your love, and the holiness of your word. We pray this and ask this in your holy name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed. Amen. Amen. Let's begin in uh, chapter 1, verse 1 of First Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. Okay, so we begin here in this letter, not, not untypical of a typical letter of Paul or Pauline epistle, a typical introduction we would see here, but... Um, in the ancient Greek of those days, uh, unlike today in our letters, we would have our signature or, or, you know, our name at the end of a letter, right? And a lot of times uh, we have to turn the page over or go to the end of the email to try to find out who's actually writing us, right? But in those days in the Greek, and quite honestly, I think a little bit more efficient, we can write at the beginning, within the first line or two, find out exactly who's written this letter to us and what is the contents of the letter. We can see in verse 2 who it's written to, Timothy as well. So he begins with a a typical letter here. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul, in his own self-description here, right, he emphasized credentials. Apostolo, that means sent one in the Greek, right? Paul, an apostle, okay, a sent one. And now he tells us by what authority? By the commandments of God very, very important. Paul was certainly declaring that he didn't make himself an apostle, right, that way. If you remember in Acts chapter 9, he was called by Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, uh, his calling, I don't know if you uh, have read that in detail, but you think about that on the road to, to Matt. how he would suffer many things. He would go before kings and governors and leaders and I mean, I don't know about you. When I think of a calling, many times we think, "Oh, it's going to be this wonderful, uh, certainly anointed calling." But uh, you know, after a few days, we start to realize this is this is work. There's labor in this. There's suffering in this, and it's good. It's actually good. It draws us unto Christ, and we never become the answer in soul. Uh, you know, thinking we have it, have it all together that way, but. Um, you might remember when he was actually ordained. We use that term ordained. You, you don't find it in a scriptural term, but do you, do you remember where we read about that? It was Acts chapter 13, right? When he had come to the home church, Antioch, the very first place uh, a Christian was called a Christian. Before that, it was called the way. So here he is at Antioch, and he's getting ready to go out on his first missionary journey. And all of the elders and those gathered are witnessing the moving of the Holy Spirit upon Paul's life. And they said, Paul, hang on here. We clearly have all acknowledged that God moved on your heart and he's doing a work in your life and clearly he has sent you. And they all lay hands on Paul and they pray for him and then they send him out right that way. Well, actually, the Holy Spirit sent him out. They acknowledged what God was doing and he was sent out. I want to be clear. And that, I think, is a, a very key indicator and a difference. We don't see that it was because he had the cemetery, I mean, seminary degree, right? It's not because he had some marvelous credentials, right? It wasn't that he put in his plaque, the Pharisee of Pharisees, and now, you know, ready and called to serve Jesus Christ. No, it, we don't read any of that. Not that there's wrong, anything wrong with higher education. Certainly not. But the idea is, is that was not what he rested upon. It was Jesus Christ and the calling he received directly from the Lord, right? By the commandment of God. And I think we as believers need to acknowledge that, that that is how it works in Scripture. Again, it's, it's not some other, uh, it's not even men telling you that, hey, you should be a pastor or you should. While well, those things could be encouraging, the reality is in Scripture, we always see it being a moving of the Holy Spirit. Just a month or so ago, I was uh, blessed to be able to go up to Calvary Chapel or Calvary Fellowship at Hal- Halifax. Uh, Andrew turned around, and he's uh, Pastor Andrew's planting work up there. He came from our flock many years ago, and he went out. The Lord led him uh, up to Halifax. He was from that area originally. And so uh, I was blessed to be able to go out there and uh, spend some time with him as we were out there in Halifax. And um, I was sharing through the words, and I was kind of, you know, stringing pearls together that way. And we get right around to Acts chapter 13, and I kind of look at Andrew, you know, Pastor Andrew that way, and I just begin to see tears fall from his eyes. I I look at his mother in the back. She was sitting on the left-hand side. I see tears start to run from her eyes. There was nobody that had to stand up there and say, what I'm doing right now is an ordination. We didn't even have to declare anything like that. There was nothing like that that's a work of man. Instead, what happened was, is everybody was acknowledging the moving of the Holy Spirit on this man's life, his faithfulness in these last few years that he's been up there to serve the Lord, to teach the word of God, to come alongside and feed and love the sheep that God has brought together there. And so certainly, I said, Andrew and Sarah, it's his wife. So come on up. You know, we're going to pray for you. And everybody knew what to do. They're well taught. They read their Bible. They all got up, like Acts 13. Nothing new under the sun. They laid hands and they prayed for Andrew, as we all do. Pastor Andrew now, and uh, it's just that's how it's always been done. I think back to Pastor Steve. I think of Pastor Bill. That's the way it's always been done, and not only in the Calvary movement, but as we see in Scripture here. And it's just it's just really great because. It's God. It's the moving of the Holy Spirit. Nobody else gets the glory. The Lord alone gets the glory. Okay, and and again, I want to take a moment that just to say it this way: Paul didn't appoint himself. Even though he's declaring here, "I'm an apostle of the Lord," he's not he's not turning around and saying that he appointed himself, and he's not calling men to do that. I've heard men walk around, "I'm an apostle." Wait a minute here. Well, who called you to be? Because the, the foundation of the church has already been laid. Who's called you to be an apostle? Explain, you know, help me understand where you find this in Scripture. Again, not trying to be antagonistic, really trying to understand. And the reality is only God calls, only God equips, and only God sends. Amen? Amen. So that's, that's what we see here. It wasn't anything else. Again, it wasn't an ordination paper. It was the Holy Spirit, and no public voting, no poll that way. Uh, Nobody saying, Paul, boy, you'd make a great pastor, Paul. No, 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 we don't see that. Being an under-shepherd or a leader in a church is not something a man strives for, and I think that's also important. It needs to be said today. It, It can certainly be desired, as we read in 1 Timothy 3. It's good to desire the office of an overseer or a bishop, as we read, but not something that we want to work our way up kind of like climbing a ladder That's not what we read in Scripture. God has called each and every one of us to an office. Some are missionaries. uh, Some are called to different offices. Not better or worse. They're all different, and they're all called by God, and they're all beautiful and holy. And and that's the thing that I think once we begin to realize that that we've been given a specific calling, and this walk in that calling and election, it takes all the weight off. It takes all the pressure off. We're simply fulfilling and obeying the calling that God has given each and every one of us. And I assure you, everyone in this room this morning, as you're hearing my voice, you're looking at me with your eyes, you all have a calling from Jesus Christ. Every one of you do. Every one of you do. So it's important. To... Now, I will say some, some things about this, that um, being an under-shepherd um, comes with certainly a, a great responsibility. It's not like winning a prize. Um, without the Lord's leading and equipping or a sustenance uh, that he provides, a man um, soon striving, he, he's going to grow weary. That's what we see happen in ministry. When someone's serving in a calling, they're not called. They grow weary. They grow desperate, right? Um, you, you must be called to the office you're, you're serving. Otherwise, the consequence to that is what? We end up with seeing sheep abandoned. That's what happens. Zechariah talks about that. You may remember chapter 11, that in the last days as we're living, that there'll come time where the pastors, the overseers, they're going to just abandon sheep because they think there's greener pastures or they think there's easier ways to do things. And certainly that that breaks my heart, and I imagine it breaks all of your hearts as well. You know, there's no better place to be than where you're called. Finding contentment in the calling God has given you in your life. And whatever you're doing, there's no better place to ever be than where God has called you. I, I encourage anybody that believes they're being called into ministry in any capacity, right? I'm talking about church ministry that way, certainly ministry in your own life, your jobs and what have you, to get scriptural confirmation. I I encourage that for anybody who's taking a job or seeking another line of work or, you know, many times people, pastor, what should we do? I, I don't have the answers unless the Bible clearly, but I encourage you to get a word from the Lord. The primary way God speaks to you is what? Through the word of God, right? We don't have special antennas, that, I mean, we have the Holy Spirit and discernment, but we don't have these special antennas that are just kind of wiggling around. Remember when we were little? I don't even know if they have any. Remember you used to go to the circus or the, you know, you got those little antennas and they're da-da-da-da. You remember those things? I'm dating some of myself. Some of you are looking at me like, I have no idea what you're talking about. If I find a pair, I'll put them on for you, all right? As long as they don't got some more, you know, girly heart thing weird like that. But, but if they're regular, I'll put them on for you. But, the idea is that we're to step in faith and obedience. That's what I'm talking about. And that's what, that's what clearly Paul is talking about to, to, to Timothy here. And I'm bringing this out because we have to understand what was actually going on in Ephesus. We read last week about uh, the turmoil that was happening. And he's going to tell them in a moment, I'm going to read it. He says, don't teach any other doctrine, Timothy. And it wasn't just telling Timothy that, but he was also telling Timothy not to allow within the church compromise compromise he was speaking to believers this was not to unbelievers this was a message to believers those that had received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and again I'll tell you ministry is not easy it's not comfortable but it's not supposed to be the stakes are high they're incredibly high because we're talking about what human souls we're talking about human souls The the, the heart that God has for his bride just think about that for a minute the whosoevers right you've heard me say it that way You know what I mean, the whosoevers. Turn to John. Some of you have gone to some sporting events. You know the passage. Where where am I going to tell you to go? John what? 3, 16. Right, you know it. Who is he talking about in this? Because I think this is representative of God's heart. Not only is God's heart the believers in Christ, those that have entered in and received him as Lord and Savior, but the whosoevers, whoever. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever, or if you prefer the King James, the whosoevers believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Who are the whosoevers? Those that have not, what? Received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It's the lost. It matters to God. It matters to the Lord. Those who have not yet believed in Jesus God absolutely is in love with them. And so we should be too. It's not calling us to compromise, but he is calling us to love them. We should never grow content with seeing someone walk by and you know, thumb their nose at God. That should break our heart and desire to come and invest in them, to draw them to Jesus. Because I'll tell you what, it took somebody that was willing to invest in me to draw me to Christ. And maybe... Maybe that's what happened in your life. Somebody invested in you to draw you to Christ. And how much more so for the others that don't know Jesus, that are willing to count the cost to to put their lives or their agendas aside for the work of the kingdom of God, for God's great plan and purpose. Again, if you're a man here and you're considering ministry, I have two points I'd like to bring up to you this morning just for consideration. Anybody seeking leadership, I don't just mean pastors. I mean any leadership within ministry in any capacity. Again, I kind of stated it already. No one should ever look to promote themselves, right, into a calling or position. That's not how it works. You know, we did see the disciples of reading the Gospels. Who's better? This one. I mean, we did see that, right? But certainly Jesus didn't give ear to that, did he? He he didn't certainly say, well, you guys fight it out. We're going to find out here. No, no, no. That's not how it went down did it? Jesus has called everyone into specific service for the kingdom, and he's gifted them accordingly. He's gifted you and I accordingly for the office that we're to serve in. Second, if you're sitting here this morning and you don't know the calling that God has on your life or the will of God for your life, Romans chapter 12 verses 1 through 4, right? Seek out seek ye first the kingdom of God and let all of these other things be added unto you, right? My encouragement is to discover the calling God has for your life and then do it. Obey. It doesn't mean it's always going to be easy. There can be a whole lot of reasons why it's not going to be easy. It could be physical, mental, spiritual. There's going to be a lot going on. But God is calling us to walk out our calling and election, make our calling and election sure. And I understand that's a salvific text. I understand what he's saying there for salvation. But it doesn't end with salvation. It continues on in sanctification, doesn't it? Doesn't it? So he's called everyone that way. And we need to discover what God and what he's calling us into. And the reason I say that is because he's only given us grace to do what Christ is calling us to. It's, It's all he's given us is the grace to do what he's calling us. And, and, and the third thing, I know I didn't, I said two. I did two points. I'm adding one as we go. The third one is be content with the calling God has for your life. I know that's hard. Maybe there's somebody here that's, that desires to be an under shepherd. Maybe somebody wants desires to be an elder, or maybe somebody desires to be the CEO of the company you work at. Be content where God has you, in season, on season. Be willing and ready to give the word of God. Because again, he's only, he's only given you the grace for what he's called you to at this point or period in your life where he calls, right? He equips, where he guides, he provides every single time. Now, as I said earlier, Paul didn't call himself an apostle or, you know, because he was called by a man or a public opinion or his credentials, his intellect or. Any gifting, right? He was called by Jesus Christ alone. I want you to think about that for a minute because that's the other thing. I want to be be very, uh, I don't want to be a contrarian, but I want to go both sides here because in one aspect, I'm saying easy. If you believe the Lord's calling, you get it confirmed in scripture. And then once he confirms it, obey, right? That's the first axiom that we get out of scripture. Timothy, a son in the faith. As a matter of fact, as we read first and second Timothy, he's going to come back to Timothy often. Timothy, you know your pedigree. Your mother read you the Bible. Your grandmother was saved. Timothy, stay in the faith. You know, he's going to talk to Timothy that way. But there's the other aspect that we see here, which, again, I think is important, is that sometimes we can come and say, well, Lord, I'm willing to serve you. Isaiah 5, or say, here I am, Lord, use me. But then something happens. We begin to pine right? We're all called, not just, you know, to leadership, but every day, you know, whether it's cleaning, toilet, whatever we need, the work of the kingdom, right? And not just in these four walls, by the way. The ministry begins when we walk outside of these four walls, right? We come here, Ephesians 4, to be equipped for the work of the ministry, right? That's why we're here. But then we go out. But one of the number one reasons I hear from people is, look, I know God has called me, but I'm waiting. Okay, what are you waiting on? Well, for him to gift me to give me the gift. I, hear, I heard a couple of you just laugh out loud, audibly, "ha," ah! as though you've heard that or been down that road, right? I want you to think back in Scripture. Where do we ever see a biblical example of that? The reality is we don't. Uh, allow me to begin with Moses. I, I mean, we could spend the rest of this time talking about prophets and Moses. He was called by God, amen? I think all of us get that. He has... He was in the wilderness shepherding there. He had what with him? A staff. Can I call it a stick? Am I going to offend you if I call it a stick? A stick. He had a stick. Is it about the stick? No, it's the staff, right? Okay, whatever you prefer. He had the staff, a stick. He's using to do what? So that when sheep would go and they were going to fall into a crevice or crack or they were going to get harmed, what would he do? Right? Use the stick to what? to move them away from harm, to lead them, to lead them. Now, interestingly, he had understood those were the sheep. Remember when God calls him, says, now you're going to go down to the children in Israel and you're going to go to Pharaoh specifically. What did Moses say? But wait a minute, I don't have the mouthpiece. It begins to go, though, this is what happens, right? So I, I, again, I'm not trying to be contrarian. I, I posed one side, but now I'm posing the other. Because I've got guys that are are called by the Lord, but they're not moving. They've become paralyzed by analysis, paralyzed by it, thinking and intellect rather than obedience and stepping, not trying to have it all together as though somehow God's going to lay out a blueprint that you, you you know, no, it's one step of faith at a time. But but please hear me out here. Moses turned around, and he says, okay, Lord. He goes down there. Now, did God come to Moses, now that you're so obedient and you've done the things I've asked you to do, and boy, you did step in faith, Moses. I have a shiny new stick I want to give you. I'm oh, sorry, a staff. A shiny new staff I'm going to give you. Is that what your Bible says? My Bible doesn't say that. It doesn't say it in any of the manuscripts, over 5,000 of them. Not one place do you read that he gives Moses anything different. He took what Moses already had, and he purposed it for that work. The difference is Moses was just catching up. Moses had no idea that God would say, you know what? Turn around and throw that stick on the ground and watch it turn into some animal, alligator, whatever you prefer, the translation there, because that's going to blow Pharaoh away. Watch. Or those that are going to see that. Or, or when he turned around and he's getting ready to part across Red Sea that you and I would look at and go, no way that these waves are going to part. They're clearly way overhead. We're going to drown and die. That's common sense. But God says, Moses, take that stick, staff, and I want you to raise it. And what happened? You know what happened. The waters parted. Maybe that's not enough. They then go over and they make their way to the promised land and they come to a place called bitterness. Mirabal, right? And as they come to this place of bitterness, they walk in and, and, and they're, well, oh, God, where were they bitter at? Were they bitter because they were thirsty or were they bitter at God? I wonder why the name was called bitterness. I'll let you be Bereans. But they turn around and they come to this place of bitterness and they turn around and they're, you know, complaining against God. And why are you not, you brought us out here. We were better off in Egypt. We, we had, you know, they, they enslaved us, but at least they fed us. Oh, my. Hmm. And then what does God say to do with that stick? Out of a rock, he tells them to do what? Right? Hit the rock. And that water's going to pour forth out of that rock. But he said, don't, don't do anything else, Moses. Don't just touch, hit the rock like that. Strike the rock. That's it. Why? Because we know in Corinthians, First Corinthians tells us that that rock was Jesus, right? It gives us the typology to know, and we're never to strike the rock twice, It wasn't another tool or utensil or other gifting or anything else. God has already equipped every single one of you here this morning with everything you need for the calling, the plan, and purpose God has for your lives. Don't you let a lie from the pit of hell ever dissuade you from being obedient to Christ Jesus. Timothy here is going to need a reminder on that, not in a stick. But he's going to be reminded that he's to stay and not to go. We're going to talk a little bit about that. But before we look at that, please look at that word Savior. Do you see how it's written God our Savior? Underline that in your Bible. That is different grammatically than we've seen in other construction of Pauline epistles or other epistles or other gospels. God our Savior. Who who do we normally expect to see? The second person of the triune God, Jesus Christ our Savior. But here we see the first person. He's speaking of God, our father, right? Remember the author of God's calling or God's calling on Paul, I should say, excuse me. I find this interesting, God, our savior. And I don't want to get off topic, but have you ever thought about the six hours that Jesus Christ hung on that cross and the fact that God, our father was in heaven and he was a witness to all of it? Have you ever thought about that? Yet the gospel accounts, and you be Barines and go back and look, they don't focus a lot on God, our Father, during this time in the crucifixion passages. This focus is on what? We see the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, right? The priests, certainly Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the disciples, you couldn't miss them or watch them run. And certainly Jesus. And the amazing atoning work he did on that cross is he hung there for six hours. But what about God our Father? He watched all of it unfold. Again, the the Gospels are somewhat silent on this detail, but please don't forget it was our Heavenly Father's only begotten Son that died on a cross that day for our sin. Maybe that's why God sent darkness to come over to land from noon till three because it was the darkest time in human history. It was so dark and so thick, you could probably cut a, you could feel like you could cut it. See, God was there. His heart was being spilled for all of humanity, which is why he says, God, our Savior. I just want you to think about it. All the evil that man's done from the beginning, Genesis 3 and on, all the way to this day, Terrible things, calling good evil and evil good, Isaiah 5, from the beginning of time. But nothing even compares to that day when Jesus Christ was crucified on that cross, what man did by putting him on a cross and killing God or trying to kill God. Nothing ever can compare or contrast it ever throughout human history. We also should never forget that Jesus Christ willingly allowed that crucifixion. He laid his own life down that we might live again, you and I, here, because he bore my sins, your sins. I think that's why, friends, to me, the most precious words when Jesus Christ hung on the cross was teleo, or if you prefer the telestai, the grammatical breakdown of the root of teleo in the Greek it is finished. It is finished. It's done. It's not Jesus plus something. It's nothing else. It's done. It's complete. It's perfect. And so are you in Christ. Nothing else needs to be done. It's finished. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 for he who made him no sin, he made him to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for you and I, that we might become the righteous, the right living in, what? Of God in him. In Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine, and for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. He wrote that for me. He knows the pride of my heart. See, Paul properly identified our real hope there, didn't he? God, our Savior, and then we see the real Savior of the world. Because remember, under emperor worship, they would have called Nero Savior, as I, as I mentioned. They would have said, Nero, you're sa-, that that lowercase s. That was common under emperor worship. If you didn't do that, they would behead you. And often the people and the civilians and citizens, they would say, you know, he is our Savior. It was, it was common for Nero to be called that. Paul's making it very clear here. There's one God, one true Savior. God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Savior can never be self, humanity, can't be family. It's not friends. It's not wealth. It's not a job or a career. It's not the government or its leaders. It's not your pastor. And it's certainly not this church. It's only Jesus, precious Jesus. He is your help. He is your hope. You see, Jesus is our savior and hope because he conquered death, didn't he? His ability to forgive sin, no one else can do that. Simply alone, he saves. That's it. None of the prophets could do that. None of the false religions or cults or idols can do that or even describe that. Only Christ, only Jesus. Not a religion, but a God-man. The God-man, Jesus. He saved us from our sin past, present, and future. He reconciled us to our Father. We can never be separated because it's finished, isn't it? It's finished. Does God do anything halfway? Is it even a how to do something halfway that way? No. No. God forbid we would ever declare something like that, the blasphemy and the lie that that would be. It's impossible. It's impossible. Everything changed. Nothing's ever the same for a believer in Christ. See, what this tells me here when I read in verse 1, our hope, it explains that it's a never-ending hope because Jesus Christ is eternal. He's not immortal, and he's not uh, simply mortal. He's neither one of those things. He's eternal. He always existed. And therefore, his love and the hope of Christ is eternal. It's never-ending. And I just think that's wonderful for a world that's in desperate need of hope today. Look at verse 2 with me. To Timothy, a true son in the faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. And another interesting point here, which is he was very close to Timothy, right? After all, he was a son in the faith. We must not confuse what Paul has set out to do here and the tone in which he's doing it. And I think that's important. This was more than a personal letter, friends. I know this is called the pastoral epistle. It's more than a personal letter here of encouragement. It's an official pastoral correspondence, Paul begins with his credentials and authority. Did Timothy not know who his father was in the faith? Of course he did. Did he need to put on the apostolic mantle so that Timothy could be introduced to this as Pastor Paul? Of course he didn't. He purposed to put on the apostolic mantle. Why? Because Paul was making it very, very clear to Timothy. I am not a respecter of persons. I am not a respecter of persons, and I am speaking to you now as a sent one by God. That's heavy, man. Pastors are your home men sitting in this room. I want you to think about that for a minute. Your wives. 1 Corinthians tells you that you are to be a covering for your wives. Does it not? It does. And Jesus Christ is your covering. Amen? What happens when we become respecters of persons? What happens when we listen to our wives, and begin to do things that would make them um, feel more comfortable in a situation but may not necessarily be what God would have us to do in that situation. What do we do? Are we given in by emotions? Do we compromise? Or are we being the hands and feet of Jesus Christ? Do we put on our mantle? our pasture mantle that God has given us as the leaders within our homes to lead, feed, and protect at any cost? Or do we go out and cut the grass again, run to the golf course, hit the pub, fill in the blank, because it's so much easier than confrontation, isn't it, guys? Nobody likes confrontation, do they? Not one of us in here likes it. That's our helpmate. That's our beloved. Do they not deserve the very best from Jesus Christ? Anything less is not answering the calling of God. And I know this is heavy. I'm speaking to my own heart. I'm thankful my wife was in first service and not here right at the moment. <laughs> She's in the wrong, the room at hearing this. But the reality is, you know what? I blow it all the time. I blow it all the time, man. Maybe I'm not alone in here. Maybe maybe other guys blow it too. But one thing I've set clear in my mind is I will not be a respecter of persons. And that's in regards to any aspect of the church, and that's in regards to any aspect of my home with my wife, with my children. Because real love is not being a people pleaser. It's not even being a wife pleaser or a husband pleaser. It's walking out the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God and leaving the consequences to him. Because my wife deserves nothing less, and neither do yours. Your wife, that is. Not plural. Your singular wife deserves nothing less. Neither do your children. When they begin to grandstand and have ideas of going left and right, and, and we ask a middle school child, what do you think you should do? What? What? Some of you parents are laughing in here because you know what I'm talking about. The kids are very good at con- uh, helping us understand their opinions and what they would like to do. But we often have to step in, don't we, and say, no, that's not of the Lord. For me and my house, I will serve the Lord. I will not compromise. If you choose to leave, then you leave. But that's your choice. My arms will be open wide. You will always know where to return. My love will be unending, but I will not compromise. But it can be lonely. And I bet it was lonely for God our Father on the cross when he watched Jesus Christ, excuse me, God our Father from heaven, watching his only begotten son on the cross. Is the very creation that he so loved put him up there as a demonstration of their power, and authority to say, I will be God. Again, the darkest time in human history. And meanwhile, God does you all things for good, doesn't he? Because he took what man was doing and what Satan was so happy to entertain, and he turned around and said, I got you. Because those that place their faith and hope and love in Jesus Christ and receive him as Lord and Savior, they're now mine and you can't touch them because the gates of hell will never prevail against my church because he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. And that doesn't ever return void, nor does his word. And so as he's talking to his true son, in the faith, he's going to have to have a real hard issue here. He's going to have a real talk. This is not going to be easy for Pastor Paul, but he's got to put on his apostolic mental Before he turns around and becomes a respecter of persons as his friend. Timothy didn't need another friend. He needed a pastor. He needed somebody that was going to be honest in his life. And and, and friends, guys, your wives don't need another man. They need their husband, the covering. To stand up and say, no, this is wrong. We're not going to do it. Or wives, vice versa. You need to go to your husbands and be honest. No, honey. I love you and I respect all the things you're saying, but... But if you do this, I'm going to have to duck, ladies. You know what I mean by that? Like duck. Like it's going to happen. Okay, I'm warning you. I'm, I'm t- all right. Whew. Okay, you love them, don't you, wives? You love your husbands. But for whom the Lord loves, He corrects. He does a far better job than you or I could ever. He corrects. But we ought to be in prayer about those things. Amen. Paul considered Timothy a true son because he invested in Timothy continually and loved him dearly. He gave him the one non-renewable resource. My again, I said it the first time. My teacher in middle school or high school was so proud of me. Non-renewable resource, right? Like, like I remember that. You know what is that? Uh, uh, oil or trees or something. But what am I talking about? How am I using it here? What is the thing he gave Timothy that? He will never, ever get back. The one thing that you and I have that we can never, ever get back, friends, that's our time. And we so aptly give it, never expecting to get it back. Everybody needs a Paul. Everybody needs a Barnabas, a son of encouragement, someone older in the faith that's an encourager. Uh, Everybody needs a pastor, a Paul, someone that's going to have authority and keep us accountable that way. And everybody needs a Timothy, somebody that we're taking the love that's been poured into us and pouring it into someone else, giving our time unconditionally without any regard. And so friends, it begins in your home. Parents, spend time with your children. That's my encouragement here. Uh, uh, Friends, spend time with one another. Invest in each other. Grace, mercy, and peace. Again, somewhat a familiar greeting, right, from Paul in his letters to the churches, but now he's applying them to an individual with the addition of the blessing of, uh, you know, of mercy here. God grants his mercy, and that's what Paul's praying for, for Timothy. Do you pray for your friends, those you're investing in? Husbands, your wives, wives, your husbands, your children, for grace, mercy, and peace, right? Again, not just in a corporate sense, but for individuals, for believers, unbelievers. Mercy is what we get, right? What we don't deserve, right? We get something we don't deserve, but grace is clearly getting more than we could ever deserve. And what did God give us? Something we could never, ever deserve. It was a gift, wasn't it? We read that earlier, Ephesians. Salvation. Redemption. Redemption relationship, love, all these things. You can't begin to put a price or even compare them to anything earthly. There's no beginning, no end. He is the Alpha and the Omega by very definition. His agape love is unconditional. There is no beginning, no end. He is eternal and so is his love. Look at verse 3 with me, please. As I urged you when I, was in, when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. Please underline that. Remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Stay in Ephesus, Timothy. Stay with the scriptures. Stay with the word of God. Don't veer I think this is important here because I want everyone to hear this right now. This is very, very important. Though Timothy had a difficult task, didn't he? There were Judaizers. There were a lot of things going on there. Paul wanted him to remain where? In Ephesus. And what was he to do? Continue the work and the calling of God. Paul urged Timothy to not leave. When Paul left, he said, Timothy, stay. Friends, we've been given a great commission here, haven't we? Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. What's the first word we, we pay attention? We circle it in our Bibles. It's go. Amen? Go. Everybody here knows that. Everybody here has got Matthew 28, 19 memorized probably, and you've heard it before. Go. That's your commission. That's your calling. It's not an opinion. It's not a suggestion. Go. Go doesn't mean that you have to travel all the way to Africa, as an example, while some missionaries do, and that's awesome. Go means go out of your house and go to your right, go to your left, and maybe walk to your neighbor's house. And that's go, right? That's go too, isn't it? But here we see another commission. We read of another one, a commandment to young Timothy. What was that? He's not to go. What is he to do? He's to stay. Please pay attention to that. He's to stay. And stay until what? Until the work is complete. Paul told Timothy to remain in Ephesus because it seemed that Timothy wanted to give up and run away, maybe. Because maybe there were greener pastures and he was dealing with all these false prophets and false teachers and false doctrine. And he was like, man, cut my losses. It's easier to go over here. What? If we're truly bond servants, doulos in the Greek, and we are surrendered, we don't get to pick and choose, and our opinion by the master isn't, isn't often asked about. If we're given a word of scripture, which in this church, one of the things that I read in scripture, he spoke to his disciples, he confirmed things in the word, he, he speaks to Paul by revelation through Jesus Christ in the word as well, one of the things I ask anybody that's serving in any leadership here, or really in any ministry for that matter, is get a word. Because the primary way God speaks to us is what? Through the word of God. So get a word. Okay, fine. The Lord gives you a word. You write, I tell him, date it and write it down. Why? Because the very next day, you're going to go, I don't know. I think I want to quit. Because our battle isn't with flesh and blood. But it's what? Spiritual, right? There's principalities and powers. So that natural inclination comes into, oh, this is too heavy, man. They don't appreciate me. This isn't going the way I thought. This isn't what I desired. You know, I have this affliction upon me. I can't can't do what I used to do. What? This man isn't writing it as a uh, suggestion here. This is a man that was afflicted himself, a thorn in the flesh. He was all well acquainted with suffering, as most of us are, to different degrees. He was told to remain, to stay. I think anyone in ministry or most people in ministry from some time uh, understand this, this desire to want to run away, take a break, get away. For few, it's a constant affliction, actually, this desire to quit, to move away. But here, friends, real love for a moment. (laughs) How can we not talk about the word of God and not speak of real love? If you got a scripture that God gave you as a calling you ought to get a scripture as powerful or more to tell you to do what? Step down to release you, right? If you got called by God, he needs to release you, and he does. There's different seasons of your life, and he can release you to those seasons. But it's not something we do of public opinion or a matter of emotions because emotions betray us here. As a matter of fact, it sounds like from what Paul's writing in Timothy, his emotions were saying, I'm done here. I I've did what I can do, Paul. It's, I'm, I'm ready to move on, and Paul's like, "Stay! No, you're not done yet. You're not done, Timothy." And this is uncomfortable, right? Sometimes this can be uncomfortable in situations, but but this is this is not a calling to leave. It's often a calling to stay when we find that suffering and uncomfortability. God may want to teach us more about ourselves, and we could miss that powerful opportunity. And and that if we just left our post, or maybe He wants us to. In someone else's life, again, to be used in someone else's life, and again, maybe we can miss that blessing, being used by God to help others. God called Timothy to Ephesus, and Timothy was not free to locate to another church without God releasing him to another church or calling. Stay. Often we hear go, but yes, often you should hear stay. And when God says stay, he doesn't release you. Now, we're living in a time of incredible relativism where everybody... Has different opinions and very strong ones at that and I believe today if maybe the color of the rug or the color of the chair doesn't suit someone's fancy some people in ministry here are laughing because they know I said that sometimes you know we have the desire to leave because it would just be easier to start over we think or what happens but the reality is God hasn't released us we don't get to go it doesn't matter what public opinion is. It doesn't matter what our opinion is and what's going on. We don't have an opportunity to leave our post, or to stay. I made a comment for services. service, as I was saying, that sometimes, you know, I, I said it too, maybe a little too strong. I had a, I had a sister-in-law that said, do you really mean this or that? And I, I was so grateful that she did. Because really, the only time I said that we would, we would leave a church is if, um, if the word of God is not being taught. I think it's pretty simple. That's a non, you know, non, non, what is it, the word, non-negotiable. But there are times God calls us to go elsewhere and to do something else, right? We recognize that, the calling, the release. I think that's important. But we better be sure that God has given us that release in Scripture so that we know we're walking in the will of God and not contrary to it. And that's really the point, right, is that... We, we, we don't want to be a reed blown or shaken in the wind or fickle that way. And I think this is a good lesson, not just for Timothy, but for all of us, because we may miss out on the opportunity, and we forget sometimes that it's at the master's discretion and not ours. Otherwise, by very definition, we're not submitted or surrendered. And I don't believe this just applies to a church or church attendance. Certainly, that's true. But I believe it has non-ministry applications as well. I think right outside of this room, in your jobs, in your careers, in your professions, where God has you, do you pray from in Scripture? God, are you releasing me? God, are you calling me to a different job? God, are you having me to do these things? I think you should seek uh, God first. Seek the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. And this isn't just my matter of opinion, since we're talking about this. That's exactly what Paul says to Timothy. He actually uses a very, very strong word in the Greek, the idea of charge. Do you see that word there? Uh, Parangaleo is the word in the Greek, parangaleo. It means to command strictly. Paul says to Timothy, I told you to command strictly those in Ephesus to teach no other doctrine. You know, Paul left Timothy with a very important job making it very important for him to remain in Ephesus. The job was to make sure that he was teaching correct doctrine, what was being taught in Ephesus. And not only he, but that he wasn't allowing anyone else to teach doctrine contrary to the word of God. You see, and I, and I say this with love, but it's not just gathering together that makes a church, even with the body of Christ. What church is, is Ephesians 4, equipping saints for the work of the ministry. And how do we get equipped? Is it because we come in and we kind of talk about what we think is important, the days, the news, uh, current events? No. What did Jesus Christ do 2,000 years ago when he came down to earth, physically manifested? He walked into church, which would at that time was called synagogues, right? And what did he do when he walked into the synagogue? He opened the Bible the Old Testament, the scroll, and he began to read from it. And then, which would have been so cool, man, I can't wait till we get to watch the DVD from heaven, right? He goes, can you imagine the way your hair and your neck would stand up when he says, today this has been fulfilled before your very eyes? Ooh, I mean, right there on the neck and everything. I mean, Jesus, Messiah, saying that right before you with such power and authority, But that's because there is authority in the Word of God. The Word of God changes heart. It conforms us into the likeness and image of Jesus. He's perfecting us through sanctification, through the reading and the understanding and the receiving of his Word. That's what's happening here. Week after week, day after day, we're being conformed from the world. Because if you're being conformed, that means you have to be transformed. But you're being transformed from something. What is it? Where you were to where you are now going. Right. It's all about your forwarding address. It's not where you've come from or where you've been, but it's where you're going. This corruption has to put on incorruption. Right. This mortal has to put on immortality, as Scripture teaches. It's the sanctification process he's doing in us. He who's begun the good work will finish that good work in you. It's not you and I that does sanctification. We surrender, but God does that good work. It's the reading of the word touching our hearts. He also says the reading of the word of God never returns void. There's power in scripture. That's why he's making a big deal about this, because he wants to make sure that the correct doctrine is being taught. Again, it's not enough that folks just gather together. It's incredibly important that the word of God is being taught accurately, again, without watering it down or changing its meaning. I think that's important too today to say, because I I, I fear that much of the church, I I don't want to name that way, but I do. I I see and hear a watering down of the word. Instead of letting the word speak and how it's supposed to speak, they begin to sort of that that's just eisegene means reading into or mirroring, they push into it an alternative meaning that make them feel better or make it less confrontational. But you and I aren't going to be transformed by that. Because if we hear that, we're hearing that from the world already, right? That, that subtle you know, watering down of, well, what feels good for you may not feel good for others. So you, as long as you're OK, I'm OK, and we can all have a kumbaya. You know, What? As though there's no absolutes. Either that or they just flat out changed me. No, that's not what God means. When he says, Follow, those, I'll, those, I'll know those that love me by those that keep my commandments, statutes, and judgments, he didn't really mean that. No, he did. He's not grammatically challenged. No, that's absolutely what he meant. Those who love me will keep my commandments, statutes, and judgments. Are we perfect? No, we're not. I'm not. But the aim and the goal is to desire to live after Christ, not live after my humanity and my carnality, Right? And I think that's a change that happened when I got saved, that I desired holiness. And he says, no other doctrine. Also, I want to imply that I believe it implies is that Paul, because he left him there, not only was he saying like Paul or to Timothy, I don't want you teaching other doctrine. I, I don't think that's exactly what he was saying in this. I think his exhortation, which was, hey, look, I left there and I was teaching them Jesus Christ through direct revelation that I received from God, and I also was teaching the Old Testament scriptures, right, which is what you have before you. Don't, te- don't let anything be taught contrary to that. Don't compromise. Don't add to or take away. I think doctrine is the utmost importance to God. He desires obedience and mercy more than he does sacrifice. And the word of God is how we get to know the heart of Christ, isn't it? The word of God is how we get to know the heart of Christ. God has a lot to say and is a good father, and he wants to protect his creation and his children. But the Bible is so under attack today, so under attack, not only from the world, but again, from the church. So much of the church today doesn't want to read the guy Bible or they'll do a topical teaching here or there. They pick one verse, and, you know, I don't know what they're doing anymore. I hear pastors say today, we no longer need to teach the Old Testament or the Bible's outdated or it doesn't speak to the next generation or the current culture. You've heard these things. Friends, what if I remind you that was nothing new? I can go back 2,000 years ago in scripture and I can read John eighteen thirty-eight. And Pilate's question is, what is truth? Truth is important. Truth is factual and absolute. It's not gray. In an age of relativism, that's hard, right? It's often answered today What is truth, and it's whatever it means to you. But that's not by definition what truth is, nor the biblical understanding of that. Truth is important to God, and it should be important to us. Truth doesn't have an expiration date like a carton of milk. It doesn't change based on the cultural norms or your generation or even the beliefs. God's word transcends time and our circumstances. Allow me just to read a few passages with you this morning here in our remaining time. Psalms 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. John chapter 8, verse 32, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. That's right. John 17.70, sanctify them through their truth and thy word is truth. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. 2 Peter one twenty, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is for private interpretation. Nobody gets to decide what they want to eisegete or mirror read to make the word of God say. As a matter of fact, Revelation chapter 22, verse 18, gives us a very stern warning against that. We read, For I testify unto every man that hears the word of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add to these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. What plagues are written about in the book of Revelation? Plagues that have never been unleashed on this earth and never will be again under the great tribulation. Heavy stuff, man. Revelation chapter 21, verse 5. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Praise you, Jesus. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are what? True and faithful. That's why the world, the flesh, and the devil don't want you to read or study the word of God anymore. That's why they're trying to redefine church, redefine all of these things because they don't want you to have the absolute truth. It's a movement of humanism. It's very, very simple and easy to see. The problem is, is much of the world has been disillusioned because they've been given over to their own hard and debased minds. That's why we see evil and murder and rape and terrible, terrible things that we see that are just sickening today. Do you know that we are saying it's okay to a little boy that he decides he wants to be like his sister, and that at age eight and nine that she he can go in and have a, a, a surgery to try to make him a -- I mean, do you realize that today there are states in Massachusetts and other that are putting this into law in place of local parentheses? Biologically, he created the male and female. God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't make mistakes. Charge them that they teach no other doctrine. You look at the public schools today, they took the word of God out of the public schools. Why? Because it's easier to indoctrinate the children. Because if you have the word of God and then you have... The word of man, it's very, even a young child can look at the difference and go, no, this isn't right, mommy. This isn't right, daddy. This isn't right, Mrs. Smith. But when you remove those things and it becomes relative and wishy washy and gray, you've given your children over to Satan. I'm sorry for being so direct. I love you. And that's why I'm telling you these things. Don't give your children over to the enemy. Don't give your children over to the devil. Not that there's not good men and women serving in those church, or those schools. There are. There are. And they're light and they're put there by Christ. But even they're coming under attack today. Right in our area, the school districts, teachers that want to stand up and talk about Jesus or history or, oh, they're coming under light and they're getting sued or they're, you know, they're being told they're going to lose their jobs. It's okay to talk about everything else but Jesus. You can talk about the Quran, you can talk about Muhammad, you can talk about all of these other things, but don't talk about Jesus. Why is Jesus such a threat? Because the devil that's pulling the strings doesn't care about all the other cults. They're works of his. They're not a threat. How can you be divided? A kingdom cannot be divided and stand. He's not worried about those. He's worried about the one true God. It's very obvious. Just simple logic teaches you that. If nothing else, why only Christ? But everything else is permissible. That would, that, to, the, to the simplest of mind. I mean, again, even, and, I, and I, I want to be careful how I say this, even with someone without a, a logical or reasoning type of uh, mind to think through those things that way theologically or even uh, just philosophically or even social, uh, social you know, from a sociology perspective, it's, it's almost kind of common sense to see that, that what is the threat from this one angle that doesn't exist from any other angle? why is that? Because it's truth. And that frightens and scares and puts the enemy right in his place. That's why he overplays his hand all the time, the devil. No, they would rather let you be indoctrinated into a worldview. And that's what we're seeing today. That's why we keep reading the Bible line by line and verse by verse. We'll not stop. I should also say that Paul's concern here was not that Timothy would begin to teach wrong doctrine. His concern was Timothy would allow others to spread those doctrines. And I think that's exactly my concern today within this church necessarily, you know, and any church for that matter. We need to lead, feed, and protect. Every one of us are Bereans. We need to be on guard for those things. He charged him, teach no other doctrine. There's no room for compromise in this order. Opinions don't matter. It's the word of God. Look at verse 4. Nor give heed to fables or endless genealogies. It seems that the great danger of these teachings uh, were fables and endless genealogies. Was that, that they were idolatrous or prideful? Possibly, right? Trusting in genealogies. Or maybe fables and stories, which is the work of imagination. At best, can I say it this way? It's a distraction. At worst, what is it? Idolatry. Because anything between your heart and God, by definition, is idolatry. (coughs) Timothy, no, he had to remain in Ephesus so that he could give the command and command others to ignore these other doctrines of the man and the devil. And I want to bring this point out today for us. It wasn't, and I want to be very clear about this, it wasn't that there was this elaborate anti-Jesus movement within this church in Ephesus. That's not how it works most of the time. It's rare that you ever see it that direct. At least that's honest, but it's not. We rarely see it that way. No, that's not what we're reading. No, this, uh, this is more insidious in that they were getting carried away by overemphasizing the wrong things, focusing and reading the wrong things. What do they say? Garbage in, garbage out. They weren't grounded in the word of God. Obedience to his commandments, statutes, and judgments. There needs to be a call for holiness today. And that's my call here this morning for the church, a call for holiness. Not just this church, but God's bride, holiness throughout this world, this land. God's not done with us. There's work to still be done in this city and many cities around this world, many places. See, they were getting caught up in a religion, an ideology of man. His ideas and laws, rather than letting their relationship with Jesus Christ and following his word, be their all in all. Because again, Jesus plus anything is what, by definition? It's idolatry and it's religion. Paul wanted to prevent this corruption. And he wanted the people not to have authority to teach these fables and endless genealogies. He wanted the word of God taught. It's dangerous when it takes place because when you don't teach the word of God, there's not godly edification. And then as I had you underlining in your Bibles, which is in faith. Do you see that? No, it's causing disputes rather than godly edification. The eventual fruit of these man-made divisions or diversions is always evident. Again, the devil always plays his hands. It's division. It's dispute. Again, these things, these ideas, they can be fascinating in the short term, but in the long run, they don't, they don't build up the body of Christ. They simply tear it down and weaken it, or try to, anyway, through fables. We'll close with verses 5 through 7 just for our time here this morning. Now, the purpose of the commandment is to love, please circle that, from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith, for which some, having strayed, having turned aside to idle talk, Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. I've witnessed this myself to see it to be true in in men that are teaching fables and or heresy. They begin not to even understand what they're trying to teach because they don't follow to their logical or theological conclusion. So-and-so doing, they say something very quick of thought but then they don't actually have substance to back it up, nor do they actually, <laughs> nor do they actually follow to the to the theological conclusion, so it ends up contradicting another portion of Scripture, right? And, and that's a lot of what the false teachings did. That's exactly a playbook from Satan, right? When he tempted Jesus, uh, Matthew chapter 4, he did turn around and presented half-truths, right? What are half-truths? Full lies. And when he presented that, how did Jesus respond back? With full truth, right? Deuteronomy chapter 8 or 6 is an example, But he says here, the purpose of the commandment, I think that's important. What's the purpose of this direct, strong edict? Teach the word of God. Why do we need to teach the word of God? Why does Timothy need to teach the word of God? Why do we today need to teach the word of God? Because he knows, and we all know, that it's an inward work upon the heart. And it's not in mere outward observance. That's what the word of God does. It does work on the heart not just on the outward appearance, okay? It's not performance-oriented. And what it does is it demonstrates when someone's being a legalist or an anti-nominalist. Either one is wrong. Satan's happy to camp people out in either area, right? The legalist is all the way over here. If I swing a pendulum, and, you know, they're on a sin witch hunt. What about this? You weren't circumcised. You, You know, you don't have this. You don't have that. You're not keeping this. You're not keeping that. Why aren't you eating kosher food? Why are you doing, you know? Oh, my. And then you got the anti-nominalist over here, which is, you know, grace upon grace upon grace. I can do anything I want. Romans deals with that. And Paul says, certainly not. That's not why Christ gave us the gift of grace. Just like anything else, it's not to the left or to the right. Stay the course. It's the narrow way, not the broad ways on either side that lead to destruction. Stay on the narrow path. Stay with Christ. Stay with Jesus if we just do that. You know what that produces, reading the word of God in scripture, it produces love from a pure heart. Uh, it destroys the Jewish type of legalistic lines that were being taught by the Judaizers at that time. You know, they misunderstood the commandment and the law. If we, if we come away with from reading God's word, if we come away from this morning, or any time we open the word, Without love from a pure heart, a good conscience, or sincere face. Sincere is the Greek term, the idea, without wax. In those days, they would, you know, if they, somebody knocked off the, no- the nose, they didn't want to recreate the whole marble statue. They would take wax, form it up, pop it right on the nose, and shave. Okay, it looks good. It looks like it's wax. It blends in. Sincere means without wax. It means without blemish, without touch, without fingerprints, without something inordinate you know, then it's been added to it. It means it's its natural state, as is. Um, So if we come away without a pure heart, without a good conscience, or without sincere faith, something is very, very wrong. You see, legalism makes you twist the word of God. Instead of showing love, right, those that practice this become harsh and judgmental. It's the exact opposite of love. Instead of having good conscience, we always feel condemned knowing that we don't measure up and we we struggle with that, right? Those that aren't in the word of God and coming away with a good conscience. Instead of sincere faith, right, we trust in our own ability to please God, not in God's work on the cross. After all, if you look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, But without faith, it's impossible to please God. To please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently, what, seek him. Right? Apparently some in this church had strayed away from God's word. Again, which produces love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And we know that in the book of Revelation chapter 2 and 3, as we read the seven churches, this is named among one of the churches there, isn't it? Because this church, and it breaks my heart when I think about it, Paul spent the most amount of time at this church, three years. They left their first love. And That's what's happening across America. That's what's happened in Europe already. God's raising up men and women, low. He is. He's sending them forth. He's equipping them with the word of God. And they're going and they're teaching the word of God. They're giving the gospel of Jesus Christ. I promise you that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. No matter how dark it looks. No matter how dark it looks. What happens? We'll close with this portion of verse 6 and 7 here. When they are given over because they're not in the word of God. So they don't get a pure heart. They don't have good conscience. They don't have sincere, sincere faith. What happens? You know what they end up doing? Verse 6, they begin idle talk. This could have been vain speculations about scriptures or, you know, for analytical, intellectual, or some type of entertainment value, but that's never meant to be part of our spiritual diet. You know, this word in the Greek is very interesting. It means babble. Idle talk, babble. Think back to Genesis, Babel. It means it's meaningless. Isn't there a lot of that going on today? I think so. Verse 17, or verse 7, excuse me, understanding neither what they say nor the things they affirm. Ultimately, the problem in Ephesus led those to not even understanding the implications of their own teaching. They didn't follow them again to their logical or their theological conclusions. And that's what's happening today. You have men that are standing up in pulpits across the United States of America and other places, and they're teaching what they don't understand. They're reading in and not teaching truth. They're turning around because they want to be so culturally sensitive. They're encouraging homosexuality, even within the ministry, leadership. 1 Timothy 3 is pretty clear about that. They're turning around and they're they're, they're setting up pubs within churches because they want to entice people to come in and have a good old time. They're not preparing soldiers. They're not preparing soldiers for Christ. They're creating itching ears. God has called each and every one of us here for a plan and a purpose. The word of God is being taught so that we are equipped to give the gospel and to help others because we ourselves at one time needed help, right? We needed hope. We needed Jesus. And we've got him now. We don't ever want to let him go. And we certainly don't want to let his word go either. Because left up to our own passions and desires and carnality. We know where we got. Could we ever have saved ourselves? If we're being honest here, please be honest. Is there anybody, raise your hand, actually don't. <laughs> but is there anybody here that could actually save themselves? I know I couldn't. Oh boy, I tried. I couldn't. And the reality is no one can. That's why it's a gift of grace. Will you stand with me and pray? It, it, for me, it's this simple as you're standing. Just it's, It wasn't the law that set you and I free. It was Jesus Christ, amen? If you haven't received that gift of grace this morning, right, that gift of salvation, I'd, I'd like to invite you to ask Jesus Christ to come into your heart and to be your Lord and Savior. What are you waiting for? Today is the day of salvation, right? If you'll pray with me. I um, just... If there's somebody online or anybody here or on the radio, I just I don't want anybody to have, think they have to wait till you you got it all together. You don't have to wait until you understand it all. All we need to do is repent from our sin, place our faith and trust in Christ alone, and watch him do the work in our hearts as he begins to soften and enlarge and place room for the word of God and Christ to come in there and to set us free, to believe that he He died and he was resurrected and now lives. If you you would just ask Jesus to come into your heart this morning, you'll forever be changed. Father, I just want to ask you, as you just overheard, Lord, I I pray that this morning there would be a great awakening, a great revival within the church, certainly, Lord, but I also, as the whosoevers, Lord, the lost, I pray, God, this morning that you you will call many, That, Lord, they will realize there's no coincidence that if they're hearing this right now or if they're here right now, you're reaching out and tugging on their heartstrings. You love them, Lord. You love in each and every one of us, Lord. And it doesn't matter what we've done or who we were, it's who we are in Christ. So, Jesus, I pray you will do a marvelous work. And I pray for those here, uh, Lord. you will seal the word of God in our hearts that there would be no room for any other doctrine or fable or genealogy as was in that day, Lord, where people were drawing attention to themselves because of their own genealogies, trying to, in a prideful manner, Lord. And Father, I pray if if somebody did receive you this morning, Jesus, God, you would have them call the church, speak to the church office. Lord, I pray you put it on their heart not to be nervous that we could get a Bible into their hands, God. Begin the process of discipleship. And Lord, I pray all of us here, will all celebrate God. It'll be a homecoming as another believer comes to you, Jesus. Thank you for the salvation. Thank you for saving us, Lord. We were so depraved, God, without you. Thank you for dying. And thank you for the time on the cross. And thank you, Father, for your perfect work as you allowed all of this to unfold from the very foundations of the world. We worship you. We praise you. We give you thanks, glory, and honor. We love you and you alone. We pray all of this in your precious name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. I love you. You know, as the Lord leads, see you soon. Don't forget we have corporate prayer tonight at 6 p.m.